It's Wednesday, October 11th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Yesterday, two high-profile magazine articles dropped on Kamala Harris, and I do mean they dropped on Kamala Harris. They sought to answer some very fair questions like, Kamala Harris, what is she doing? Where is she going? Why is she there? When these questions were put to Harris herself, she seemed a bit peeved to even be asked. The first article in The Atlantic by Elena Pott Calabro was titled The Kamala Harris Problem. In it, the vice president welcomed the author into her residence and discussed her decor, but didn't really offer anything of a thesis statement or a rebuttal to the widely expressed opinion that the Harris vice presidency has been, at best, pointless. More pointed was Esteed Herndon's article in the New York Times Magazine. Herndon wasn't afforded the niceties of a home visit or even a promised second interview that was denied to him because his questions to the vice president were dismissed. Herndon points to Harris's high-profile stumbles, as did Pot Calabro, the chief among them being the Lester Holt interview about the border crisis. Okay. Do you have any plans to visit the border? I'm here in Guatemala today at some point, you know, we are going to the border. We've been to the border. So this whole this whole this whole thing about the border, we've been to the border. We've been to the border. You haven't been to the border. And I haven't been to Europe. And I I don't I don't understand the point that you're making. But Herndon also tracks the vice president to other environments where none of her attempts at explanation or outreach ever seemed to land. A good example was the Munich Security Conference, which was far from a disaster. It was just a little bit of nothing, a missed opportunity in a term full of such misses. Listen to this short clip. And together we have pursued energy security and reinvested in our collective defense. And we have come together to stand for our common values and our common interests and our common humanity. The reaction was, predictably, almost nil, not just to that sentence, but to the appearance at all. And Herndon tries to rouse the vice president, not with provocations, but with the opportunities to answer good questions. He asked her about her changes in philosophy over law enforcement. Was it, here's his question, quote, an evolution based on new evidence? Or is it a kind of tacit admission that the view from 20 years ago might have been incorrect? Her answer, why don't you break it down to which part you're talking about, then I could tell you. He tries again. When you think about what changed from them to now, is there anything you look back at and say, I wish we did differently. Harris answers, you have to be more specific. He asked her about her inequality agenda and how should we respond to the idea that she was chosen as vice president to tick a demographic box? Or he asked her, quote, what does vice president Kamala Harris bring to the ticket? What is the clear answer? And she answers by citing the crowd she had just spoken to. They stood and cheered for her. That was her answer. But the substance of the questions is left unaddressed. The lack of an answer and the fact that so much effort was spent avoiding the question says a lot. Or maybe like Harris, it doesn't really say anything. In any case, I recommend both articles if you have the time. They're fair and fleshed out and acknowledge and grapple with all the nuances that I have to flatten in this short space. But I came away with one thought and it's this. The vice presidency as an office can be many things, but at the very least, it's a way for the president to balance a ticket and signal to a constituency that he wants their support. 
And I see no evidence that under Kamala Harris, that is also the most the office is. On the show today, the cost of disunity at home and abroad. But first, and speaking of our broken system, our disunified system, political and otherwise, Alana Newhouse is the editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine. And she and the magazine, which is a chronicle of Jewish life, have been understandably focused on Israel. Now, this is after Newhouse wrote a widely read critique of American society that I thought might fit the moment that we are in here, but also the moment that Israelis are in there. Her idea, the term that gained a lot of notice is brokenism. We discuss what's broken and how decay shows up in different ways, in different societies, at different moments. Alana Newhouse up next. Alana Newhouse is the editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine. Tablet covers society, culture, politics from a Jewish perspective. It positions itself as, quote, a hub for Jewish life, and they once wrote a very well-reported article on me. In 2021, Alana took pen to paper, pen to tablet, as it were, and wrote about brokenism. The idea that, and this is a quote from a respondent to that article, that the dominant institutions of American life in education, in arts, in politics, are either totally broken or so weak or corrupt that they've become irrelevant. Well, I want to talk about brokenism, and I want to bring it to the events that are obsessing Alana, of course, and myself, and probably you, what's going on in Israel, because I see some parallels between the United States society and that one. But welcome to The Gist, I think, for the first time, Alana. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me what's the difference between brokenism and declinism. Brokenism is hopeful. (laughs) Um, Brokenism fundamentally is rooted in the idea that it is natural for institutions and societies even to decay and change over time. That's how we progress, is that we fix things, we make them better, we adjust, sometimes we replace them. Um, So inside of the idea of brokenism is a notion of optimism, that in fact, the best way to improve the world is to look at it plainly and to acknowledge and admit the problems that you're seeing so that you can improve them. So, okay, great. Declinism is a pessimistic outlook. It's a cognitive bias. You're saying brokenism is the exact opposite. It really tries to mitigate against having any sort of mental bias. It, it, absolutely. And, and, and more importantly, to me, brokenism was about how to act in a moment. The, the frustrating thing about looking at American society now is that you're looking at things that clearly don't work. American healthcare does not work. You cannot look at it and say that it works. So you have two choices. You can either try to wake up and convince yourself that it does, which is a state of denial, and it's going to drive you crazy. It's going to create a mental disorder in yourself and in other people. Or you can say, that doesn't work. It needs to be replaced. And to me, the hopeful thing is to do the latter, is to say, I believe in myself, in my fellow Americans, in my leaders, and if I don't believe in my leaders, I'm going to replace them. I believe in a set of people that can make this better. Yes. 
Okay, I love this idea that things, you have to be honest and know that things decay over time. The United States started with a democratic system of government, the first since the Romans. They got a huge head start. It gave benefits to the people here, but of course it's going to decay. And every other country that has decided how they were going to create a judiciary did not have lifetime appointments, for instance, for its its, uh, justices, and therefore that's a sign of decay. I like that. However, there is also, as you know, and Tablet writes about this a lot, there is such doomerism and pessimism. And I think it's a little hard to navigate what is uh, an honest assessment that we could call declinism and what is being doomerish when there are, per, for instance, aspects of the American healthcare system that are amazing, that maybe we don't even think about or take for granted. We have a breast cancer survival rate that's second best in the world, 88.6. We have a prostate cancer survival rate of 97.2. These cancer survival rates have declined dramatically since the 90s. I know of no one except uh, oncologists who are pricing it in. So to go back to my question, how do you do that? How do you navigate between what is an actual clear-eyed assessment and what is maybe psychology convincing us that things are worse than they are? Again, I I think this is where you're helped by seeing things plainly. Um, another example I would give is Medicare, Medicaid, right? We don't want to just sit trash Medicare and Medicaid and throw it in the middle of the ocean because it's actually the safety net for hundreds of millions of people. Um, and for many of them works well enough and in some cases works very well, but looking at something and saying these parts of it work and these parts of it don't is the work of being invested in society. And this idea that you have to actually have an ideological um, umbrella that you apply, and that umbrella has the exact same answer for everything you put your eyes on, feels to me to be not just limiting, but actually like it's corrupting. And it makes us unable to acknowledge our problems. Give me a specific example of where that umbrella is applied to a specific aspect of society. Well, I mean, I think that we we can almost look at anything. Like, you know, do we, when we look at at, at the public school system and we say there are whole parts of this public school system that are really being shamed by our charter schools. It's true. There are huge numbers of charter schools that are doing much, much better in some of the poorest communities in, for example, our city, right? Does that mean we shouldn't have public education anymore? It does not. But it does mean that, wow, wouldn't it be great if we had somebody looking at those charter schools and saying, why are they able to do that? How are they able to do that? How are they able to have the the huge percentage less violence in their schools, Schools that are right next door to another school with an enormous rate of violence. How? Mm-hmm. How is that possible? Can we replicate it? So the ideological umbrella excuses the flaws. The exact kind of person who is most motivated to eradicate the inequalities of education and knows that we're not educating all, maybe all our students, but certainly our black students, and they really are earnestly motivated, would probably subscribe to an ideological umbrella which says, but the teachers union or but charter schools are uh, a bane. Right. And not only that, but say charter schools are evil. Nobody should look at them. Don't don't even look at them. Not for one minute. There's there's something fundamentally wrong and bad and draining of the public school system. There's nothing. Don't don't set your eyes in that direction. If we subscribe to brokenism, how do you look at uh, society changing 
occurrence such as, well, not just the pandemic, but Operation Warp Speed? Do we look at, if we're going to be good brokenists who look at the world plainly, do we look at Operation Warp Speed as something like a haphazardly executed miracle? Or was it a through bungled logistics, just a wasted opportunity for what could have been a brilliant solution? I think we should, in this moment, um, maybe reserve the, the, the final judgment on things. We're a little too close to it. What I will say is, is I, I do believe that there were fundamental and almost inexcusable mistakes made because there was not this willingness to ask, to, to allow people to ask questions. There was a sense of, this is an emergency. Everybody just go with what the authorities are telling us. And Anyone who doesn't is going to be smeared um, for asking questions. And I think that when when we finally do have a verdict on that, whatever negative judgments get made are going to get made because there was no, there weren't multiple opinions allowed. Yeah. This is going to take us to where I want to go, which is what you've been thinking about, which is Israel. But to get there, I want to talk about American politics, because it seems that when you say brokenism, most people's minds would go right to American politics. And that description is apt now as much as any time during our lifetimes. It is just not working And it's not just an institution, it is the overarching institution that we as Americans were told are supposed to be able to steer all our other institutions. So it's extra depressing that that's one, that that is one institution that is beholden, uh, that that is a symptom of brokenism, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's what I was thinking about in Israel. Well, you tell me, but Israeli politics is also unbelievably riven and uh, people are at each other's throats and there's so much disunity and not just disunity, real genuine questions. If, If I talked to you one week ago today, real genuine questions about the effectiveness of the entire Israeli political system. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You know more about it than me, but would you agree with that? Yes. Yeah. So there was all this disunity and then this horrible calamity interjects itself. And now just today, a unity government, which people saw coming is happening. And it's not going to be the balm for all the problems, but it does seem that in this case, and I don't know how to interpret it, is it that in times of unbelievable calamity, the brokenism can be ignored, gets threatened, or does it show that what seems so broken is actually not as broken as it seemed, that there, that when the stakes are high enough that we have some, whatever the opposite of brokenism is, or they do in Israel? Um, you know, it's a, the, the thing that I would say is, is whatever happens this week, whatever relationships people manage to build so that they can get through a national emergency. Those things are different than the system that underpins it all. The system that underpins it all is clearly broken. Mm -hmm. So even if a set of people almost create paper over the brokenness of that system to create temporary relationships to get the nation through something. It doesn't necessarily mean, and probably doesn't ultimately mean, that they're going to fix the systems that were broken underneath them. Um, 
so, so I think that they need to be separated. And I think that, you know, brokenism is fundamentally, the idea behind it is that every time there's an economic revolution, all the systems for how we, how societies are, Western societies are, uh, contemporary societies are, are structured, get stressed and often broken, right? We had mm-hmm. this after the industrial revolution, which you saw massive changes in society, very, and also pandemics, um, and also uh, the loss of religion, and then a complete resurgence of religion, a lot of the things that we're seeing now. Um, so I actually think that brokenism is global, but it looks very different to stress a system in France than it does to stress a system in the US. Yeah. Israel has this really weird collection of features, which is it is at once an ancient civilization that is also one of the most technologically advanced, in fact, many ways developed so much of the technology that we all use. Um, Its relationship to brokenism is very strange because in some senses, Israel raced right in to the idea that the world could be better, the idea of progress, the idea of technology, raced really fast into it. Right. They had to. Without too many natural resources, they had to sort of innovate themselves. They had uh, to, but I would say that there was also a a natural and emotional proclivity for it. Some people like change. Some people lean into change. They are comfortable with it. Mm -hmm. And Israel and Israeli society is comfortable with it. You can say psychologically it's because they have to be, but whatever the cause was, they can do it, right? And... So their relationship to brokenism looks actually much more complicated than the U.S.'s. Um, And I think that also it's hard to talk about this week's news in part because it's so um, affected by and influenced by U.S. and U.S. policy. The other way of thinking, that's compelling. The other thought I had when thinking about this discussion and Israel and comparing it to the United States is that I don't know that some of the worst off people or cultures in the world would be best described as being affected by brokenism. They're just probably affected by injustice or they never had their material needs met. Maybe brokenism occurs. I mean, you're acknowledging it's a decaying of the system over time, but maybe it occurs once your basic material needs are met, then you could start looking inwards and looking for perfections. So thinking about what's going on in the United States, maybe we got to a place where, yeah, it's true. Our political system is in such doldrums, but we got to a place where we can identify brokenism just because things are going relatively good, but they're not going as good as they want to be. Now, apply that to Israel. It seemed like they were experiencing brokenism, but then at the moment things change and they they are in an absolute crisis, brokenism or the idea of brokenism becomes uh, a far off luxury. And you don't even think that that is what is best describing their situation right now. It's broadly right. Like you have a country of 9 million people. It's tiny. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. There's at various points, it's the width of New Jersey. You know, you, you, you're talking about something that is a, a region that is so, so much smaller than the U.S. Um, so part of the conversation is, um, we can't, we, it's, it's kind of hard to compare and contrast. Um, but having watched this morning, uh, an incredibly emotional video of a father in Israel screaming at Bibi Netanyahu, um, yelling at him, we will never forgive you. For the intelligence failure, he was saying. He was, yes, he was saying, we will never forgive you for on your watch. 
Yeah. More than a thousand people being butchered. And it's hard to watch a video like that and think that everyone is having the same emotional reaction in Israel. Mm-hmm. Everyone may get behind the same action, but they're not all having the same feelings. What about the fact that we're at each other's throats? And in America, we're at each other's throats. And, you know, in Israel, we were. But I don't know how to think of that as either, is that the symptom? Is that the cause? Or is that the solution? I mean, you're not going to get anywhere and you're not going to fix the brokenism. Maybe you could argue until you really compel people who are standing in the way to change their actions. So what about just all the anger? Is there one answer to how to look at that? I think I think it's not about not having a fight. I think it's about figuring out the best way to have a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I in the brokenism essay, I, I talk about the why basically why tablet has become a hub for this conversation. There are a lot of people on tablet staff who are not brokenists. I myself flip back and forth, um, and I say at the beginning that you know part of the what some people see as a uh, multiple personalities in the magazine. They think that you know some of our articles feel one way to them, and some of them feel completely different. Um, and the writers often have diametrically opposing views. And I basically say at the beginning, like we're not confused. We're having a fight, mm-hmm. and we're just trying to have a fight in a way that gets us to an answer. Yeah. Much of social media these days uh, doesn't generate what I would say are healthy fights. Um, and more importantly, it doesn't make us good fighters. We're really fl- like flabby and ch- we cheat. Like if, if you like, you just think about what kind of fighters we've become, we've become bad fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, I've, what I'm seeing work really well um, are people who are taking things offline and going back to real life, sitting mm-hmm. in rooms with people, and actually talking to them in 3D. Stuff that's coming out of rooms with humans is much more affecting and feels much, much more lasting than stuff that's happening on social media. Last thing, and it's not about brokenism, but as a Jewish American and as a public intellectual who uh, has an outlet that uh, defines itself as the hub of Jewish life and as someone who is writing a lot about Israel, what's something for Americans who are generally sympathetic to know or uh, an action that they could take uh, either in their personal lives or maybe publicly that isn't among the obvious, isn't among the, you know, send your thoughts and prayers and sympathies to victims of terrorism? The best thing that someone can do for Israel right now, um, I've actually been telling people that they should write down how they feel right now. Um, and keep that piece of paper for two weeks from now. And the reason for that is not just because I want you to stay supportive of them in this moment. It's actually not because of that. It's because I want people to understand how vulnerable our brains are to social media mobs and to how ideas, quote unquote, work in contemporary society. And I want them to see how fast they change. Because I think we need to understand how, 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 truly how vulnerable we are to believing things that other people want us to believe. 
The reason why that's important for Israel, and honestly, even more important for America, is because we kind of are jerking around a lot. Mm-hmm. And we are, it's a crisis that we literally just sit and we wait in the morning for our marching orders from Twitter about what we're supposed to be outraged by today and what we're supposed to believe today. And there feels like there aren't fundamental principles that people go back to and they can say, I believe this and I believe this no matter what. And no matter what a mob comes comes into my Instagram and tells me, there are certain things I believe in. For example, I believe in free speech. That's, that's a core value for me, Alana, right? It doesn't matter what kind of speech I see. You, I don't know, I don't care how vicious and how horrible, that's just going to make you think me think you're a horrible person, mm-hmm. but I'm never going to want to suppress your speech. And it doesn't matter whether or not the left decided over the last five years that, that speech actually was a complicated issue. It was never a complicated issue for me, and it's never going to be a complicated issue for me, Right. Now, I need to sit inside and I need to root myself inside of the things that I that are valuable for me and that are my principles. And the reason is because I cannot be a good friend or a good ally or a good citizen if I don't. If I am so easily jerked around and if my brain is basically someone else's, I'm no good to anyone. So the best thing that you can do is take back your brain yeah. And remember what you stand for. Alana Newhouse is editor-in-chief of Tablet Magazine. Alana, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And now the spiel. Disunity is a funny thing, or a deadly thing. In advance of the Hamas flash murders and kidnappings of four days ago, Israel was not unified. The country was experiencing their largest internal division in years, and this is a country that's often divided. At issue was Prime Minister Netanyahu and his rightist government's remaking of the judiciary, weakening the Supreme Court, allowing his preferred policies to pass without sufficient judicial review. Millions, and I mean literally millions over the course of demonstrations, took to the streets. And remember, this is a country of 10 million people, of whom 8 million are Jews. Part of the debate were high high-status Air Force reservists vowing to resist a call-up in protest of the Netanyahu policies. Those threats, of course, melted away in the wake of these very real, unignorable attacks by Hamas. But the dispute was also real, and it was intense. Now, it has been asserted that it was a contributory factor to Israel's quote-unquote distraction. And even if that's not true, the politics behind the judicial overhaul were driven by the same calculation that has characterized most of the Netanyahu tenure, or tenures. He has been Prime Minister of Israel's 27th, 32nd, 33rd, 34th, 35th, and now 37th government. His skill is survival and playing factions off each other, certainly not unity. But 
a democracy will always have some degree of disunity. Otherwise, it's an autocracy. And all of the horrible success of the Hamas operation can't be laid at the feet of one side or another being distracted by matters domestic. The Israeli intelligence failure goes far beyond the ability of leaders entrusted with such matters to simply pay attention. However, when we think about the U.S. and our current situation of deep, deep disunity, Israel can serve as a harrowing lesson. Yesterday, President Biden said all the right words in terms of pledging support and offering no daylight between U.S. interests and Israel's. We must be crystal clear. We stand with Israel. We stand with Israel. And we will make sure Israel has what it needs to take care of its citizens, defend itself, and respond to this attack. There's no justification for terrorism. There's no excuse. Here, here. So it is deeply disturbing when members of Biden's own party, not many, but some well-known ones, can't bring themselves to voice similar clarity or only do so in half measures and under duress and feel the need to use words like apartheid, a word used by Cory Bush and Ilan Omar in their communications to describe the country that suffered unimaginable targeted slayings of civilians. And not just Israeli civilians. We now know that at least 22 Americans were killed Many are being held hostage. Now, that number was officially a little bit lower when Rashida Tlaib issued the following statement. As long as our country provides billions in unconditional funding to support the apartheid government, this heartbreaking cycle of violence will continue. Remember, killed were American citizens, and she chose to criticize someone other than the killers of American citizens. I mean, imagine 22 French citizens indiscriminately killed by Boko Haram in Nigeria, and a French legislator using the moment to publicly announce that it's anyone's fault but Boko Haram, the murderers themselves. But that is the left, the far left. The right, the not just far right, but the planted in the middle of the right right, itself could not stop from criticizing President Biden even as he was substantively attending to Israel's precise needs exactly as the Republicans themselves demanded. Two days ago, Joe Biden, quote, put a lid on his activities to the press, meaning he was no longer available to them. He was off doing presidential things instead of making his activities known. He was amid briefings and calls to Israeli leadership and putting out statements about the dead, among other things presidential. He did attend a previously scheduled activity at the White House, and that, of course, caused a round of recrimination, a pot shot of a talking point voiced here by Kevin McCarthy on NBC. So what I'm seeing right now is something that is leaderless. I have watched the president do a barbecue, tweet about things that nobody cares about, and put a lid on today when the world is looking for leadership. On CNN this morning, Ron DeSantis was asked about Joe Biden's speech that I played a clip of, and DeSantis didn't disagree with the sentiments of the speech. He didn't disagree with the sentiments of Israel's former ambassador to the U.S., Michael Oren, who called the speech, quote, the most passionately pro-Israel in history. But DeSantis just couldn't resist the allure of the low-hanging jibe. They didn't even wake him up on Saturday, and then he called the lid Monday when we had Americans uh, that were uh, reported killed. But here's, I think, what's important, John. Let's have unanimity. Yeah, unity. Because such statements are simply standing athwart disunity. 
they're not at all widening the chasm for political gain. Of course, good criticisms, apt criticisms can certainly, in fact, they're necessary to strengthen a system, that system being an intelligence network or a military operation or a country itself. But these sort of criticisms, they are disunity incarnate. And how many more lessons do we need about the price of that? That's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the CLFAO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is sponsored and presented in collaboration with AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Um, Pru, G, Pru, Du, Pru. And thanks for listening.